0: Welcome to The Atlas Project. It's a new world. To navigate it, we need new maps. Each episode, best-selling author Chris Katana and Scott Jones saw 50,000 feet above the immediate headlines in politics, economics, science, and society. The Atlas Project aims to reveal the big picture of where humanity is headed and the choices we all need to face. Chris, good to see you again my friend. We were just in the pre-show conversation talking lights, computers, Opera House's technology. Scott, always good.
1: Yeah, we were warming up. I mean, it's uh, actually for a few minutes there I thought we were rolling tape. It's kind of sad that that's going to that's just going to stay between us.
0: Well, yeah, that we'll, we'll get for like uh our, if you become a funder or something, we'll send you the pre-show tape like uh
1: <laughs> the B-roll. <Woo. laughs> If you're if you're like uh, you know top tier funder, we'll actually get it converted to you know some kind of physical film.
0: Exactly, we'll send you a
1: film, and then and and then send you that. Whether you'll have the capacity to play it back might be might be a problem, but that's on your end. That's on you.
0: Yeah, I've thought about live streaming our conversations, but I'm I'm trying to figure out how we would do it and keep the sound quality up, Blake. Um So in the future. If our listeners, if you're listening to this and you would like to, you know, see us record this, parts of it, you know, is you're going through your day and you want to goof off at work and you want to see us on a Thursday morning record, you know, let us know and I'll look into how we could do it and keep our sound quality as good as it is.
1: That's, uh, you're going to, it's going to be a stampede to the door for that one. Exactly. I'm just not sure if they're coming in or they're, or they're leaving. Or they're going out. One, right.
0: Exactly. Hey, so yeah, you gave yeah, a, yeah, you gave a seminar this week, right? Did,
1: Oh, so yeah, so I got I got to share this with uh, with you and everyone because it was super fun. So I mean, I I think we've talked about this before. I do I do quite a lot of um education and and workshops with senior executives. I mean, especially European, but they're kind of from all over the place um through my affiliation with uh with Oxford University. And and so there's always people coming in who are kind of, you know, looking for the intellectual leadership of oxford to help them make sense of the world and 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 it tends to be a lot of uh, senior executives because these are people who you know they're basically you know they're responsible for some kind of uh you know transformation agenda right we've got to change how our business operates and and so you know, if, if they recognize that, then they also recognize that some of the stuff that we're doing right now is somehow the wrong stuff to be doing. And, and so you've got all these senior executives who, who who come with tons of anxiety. They want to kind of figure out the future and not be afraid of it and, you know, s- stop doing the wrong things and start doing the right things. And, and so you come into into this intellectual community just, just hungry for ideas and, and guidance and, and and direction. Of course, you know, what they often don't realize is that you know the, the intellectual community is just as divided and confused as as they are we just you know use more syllables to 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 have have the argument have the conversation um but anyway so tuesday was uh, another one of these it was a kind of uh, a group of thirty or forty, you know, sort of like high potentials who have been identified, whatever that means. Uh, in uh, I'm a in I'm I'm, a, I'm a
0: solid middling potential. <laughs> are, you, are you a middling? No, no, no. Solid, you're, solid you're, middling.
1: There would be. I'm I'm sure. You know, in this day and age, there would be some sort of affirmation giving group. That you would belong that, to that, that, in that any large corporation, you might you might be like one of the like one of the aspiring troublemakers, or you know people people would find a way to make you feel good about yourself and to give more when you come into the office, whatever whatever your your gifts might be. But but anyway, so these were you know high potentials. I, I hate all this language, but anyway, that's that's business speak for you know we think that we will give you a bigger budget to control one day. So you know come to Oxford and learn some stuff. Uh, for a big global pharmaceutical company, like one of the big ones, so you know, interesting organization and and you know a kind of company that uh, has to deal with all sorts of change that is taking place in the world.
0: And I kind of guess public opinion is often not on their side. I mean, like, <clears throat> which is, I mean, you could argue <clears throat> for or against that. Like, whether I mean, because you know the, the you know the drug prices and and the profits, but then you, you know in how that seems exuberant, exuberant, but then you, from their side, like, hey, you don't see how many drugs fail, trial testing and stuff, and so, the successful ones have to subsidize the failing ones, and so, you know, I mean, there's, but, I mean, but it's still, it's hard to sell that, like, when they're making a killing, it's hard to explain that to consumers.
1: Yeah, that's true, and you know, when you get inside these large corporations, that's, you know, that's, that's one of uh, a dozen giant questions that they're kind of, working with and 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 struggling with i mean they've got a whole other group that's trying to figure out you know how do we work with the hospitals of the future you got a whole other group is trying to figure out you know where will the healthcare markets of the future be like what's going to happen in africa what's going to be happening in developing parts of asia over the next 10 20 30 40 years um yeah yeah you know what's our legal strategy around patents and and it's true at the end of the day uh you know The the corporate types are basically, how can we make more money for our shareholders? But, you know, big corporations like this, they're they're also complicated spaces. You've got a lot of, you know, highly trained, uh, highly committed uh, medical researchers, you know, scientists who are in it for the science, right? Who, Who are there because inside the paywall, I get a big budget to... You know, run my trials, and you know, come up with a bunch of funky molecules or whatever it is they do, but with just far more resources and far less kind of uh, paperwork than they had when they were in some kind of academic research shop. And and anyway, all that is context. So so I I walk in there in Oxford for a week, and I walk in on on kind of the morning of day one, which is where I'm often brought in uh, and asked to uh, basically talk about. 21st century challenges. So, like, this very broad remit. to So, you know, Chris, uh, t- so this uh, this thing called the future, tell us about that, right? And and basically, to them, I represent their fear, right? I represent there's this uh, change or unknown. The future is going to be what it's going to be. I don't know. But, you know, so, so manage my fear for me. Take it away. Give me a structure or a framework for making sense of it so that we can then, you know, be... Be comfortable.
0: There was a picture, a me- there was a thing. meme going around Facebook. It was a picture of Howard Cosell standing next to OJ Simpson and Bruce Jenner from the 70s. He's like, hi, I'm Howard Cosell. I can see the future. And let me tell you what I'm seeing in the future for you two guys. That <laughs> 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 was great. So you're like, they're Howard oh, Cosell.
1: Okay, I'll, I'll use that next time. Maybe will help them understand what, what, what the relationship is meant to be. Uh, but uh, anyway, so it happened that this time... I was giving this workshop in uh, a very unusual venue, uh, which is uh, it's called the Oxford Union, and it's a debating chamber, a rather famous debating chamber. I mean, you know, everyone has appeared in that chamber and uh, given a talk, right? Like from sort of you know Mother Teresa and uh, you know the Dalai Lama to you know Justin Bieber, right? It's 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 this famous venue. What, what,
0: what, from the ridiculous to the sublime. There, <laughs> yeah, that, no, that's right. Do you know, and, do you know, and, and do you know like when Justin Bieber went to see Anne Frank's house? You know, tour the Anne Frank. He's like he looks all emotional and goes, "I think she would have been a believer."
1: <laughs> oh my God, he did not say that. He
0: did say that.
1: I I you know so he's my countryman. So mm.
0: Canadian Canada has given a lot of great things musically to the world.
1: Thank you, thank you. That's just. Let's just move on from that subject then. Well, I guess I brought it up, so it's it's my own fault. Uh, but uh, so this is a debating chamber, and uh, it's one of the world's um, sort of most celebrated debating chambers for competitive debate. Uh, and so you've got competitive debates happening there every week uh, where you've kind of got a motion, and, and then you've got speakers for the motion, and you've got speakers against the motion. And so what I decided to do kind of to, to push back against the idea that there is sort of one future or one narrative of the future, uh, but also to have a bit of fun with that venue is I decided that rather than tell them um, sort of what the future is going to look like, that I would, I would stage a debate uh, against myself. And, uh, and so I set a motion, which was in, in kind of the classic style of motions in that debating house, this house believes that humanity is on the right track and then I had four people speaking for the motion and four people speaking against the motion, but all of those eight people were me. Wow! And I went back and <laughs> talk about multiple a total personality disorder. It was a total yeah, mind. multiple mo- yeah, personality disorder, man. <laughs> Uh, but it was great. And, and so the, it was so much fun. Were you saying to yourself, so much
0: why you are so persuasive, my friend?
1: <laughs> no, I was, I was, I mean, you know, in good competitive debate, which, uh, well, I don't know if I was good, but I used to do it. You know, it, 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 part of the art is the art of the well-turned insult. So I was throwing barbs at myself and undercutting myself and, you know, a lot of good rhetoric. but. Uh, but the way that the debate works classically, so one person speaks for the motion, and then one person speaks against the motion for about five minutes each, uh, and then you go back to the for, and then you go to the against, and so I, I did that kind of ping pong thing, and I had I had sort of speaking notes laid out, for sort of four seats on the left and four seats on the right, and uh, I, I, I I took off my blazer when I was speaking on the opposition side and i put on my blazer when i was speaking on the proposition side i think i think just to help me keep my head straight
0: so which was and, okay uh, so so the blazer was for the motion
1: yeah because i felt like a lot of the people for the motion it is kind of more
0: highbrow it is
1: a bit more of a of a conservative argument right uh, conservative. and maybe humanity uh, is on the right track or maybe privileged and, also elite
0: so maybe you're the working class populace without the blazer
1: it was definitely a bit, and more, you're the
0: devo's kind of, you know, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. okay, I'm seeing it. So, I get, so there's so, there's know, a method so, behind your madness.
1: Well, yeah, but uh, you know, which I only kind of figured out in retrospect. Like, oh yeah, that did make sense so I did it that way. Uh, but you know, and it was kind of each round was was sort of structured. This sounds by so, so, so fun. It was a lot of fun. I actually it went so well, and I got such great feedback about it. But I but I said so. I decided I'm going to do a lot more of this. I'm going to try this a few more times, uh, and uh, and see. How it goes? Because the other thing that we did was after each round, rather than go immediately into the next round, I kind of paused the debate, turned to the audience, the people that were there, and asked them, "Okay, so what are some of the rebuttal points that you would want to make if you were speaking next?" So you've just heard the for and against that last round. What are your arguments to rebut the arguments that you've heard? And, and they were and so probably th- thinking
0: that the whole time. That's great because th- yeah, they're exactly, in their head already.
1: Exactly. In their head already. So we, we, so we got all those out on paper. And then part of the challenge that uh, I, I set with them and set for myself was that in the next round, in addition to kind of my prepared debate with myself, I would also incorporate – the arguments that they were surfacing, if I didn't already have them in, so it, 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 I, I, I again, hope you I, had.
0: I hope you had a tip jar out because I mean they really.
1: <laughs> that, totally this is, this is well worth the price of admission. It was really fun, and you know, at the end of it, one of the one of the comments uh, of one of the executives there was like, yeah. "So I'm very curious, where do you stand on this debate?" Because it was impossible to to tell if you personally were for or against it. Uh, which was great i felt like uh you know like uh, who, who is it bobby fisher you know who would play chess and sometimes he would play against himself uh, you know play equally hard equally fair for and against and he never lost um
0: yeah i had a seminar leader when i was doing phd work and he was such a good teacher and i would you know we didn't ideologically we we're probably in di- different places on some things and i would make a point and he would repeat it back to me, even a little refined. I was like, exactly, you get it. He's like, yeah, I totally disagree with you. But yeah, so Mm. it was so like he was able to say what I was advocating in a language as good or better than I was. I thought, what a mark of a master teacher. You know, it was just amazing.
1: Well, so I don't think I'll give myself that kind of status, but it it was a great learning experience, actually. You know, we talk a lot about you know, it's sort of an idea that gets thrown out there. We got to, you know, we got to get good at shifting perspectives and to kind of understand the different sides of the argument. But to actually try to embody and advocate different sides of the argument in in kind of, you know, the same half hour back and forth like a ping pong eight times really, uh, you know, does, I guess on the positive end, it helps one sort of, personally to develop a kind of plasticity a kind of flexibility that that then like after you go through that you you kind of you you almost actively resist one-dimensional static assumptions and say okay no, let's try to understand the full picture but you know more cynically and more perniciously and this is something that we kind of talked about in the debrief is you know the how how Clearly, it exposes that we do live in this moment where it is possible, and maybe maybe this has always been true, but it it, it seems especially easy right now to um, articulate compelling narratives on opposite sides of the same question that that really leave people divided about what's right and what's the way forward. It kind of relates to our last conversation about truth. I mean, there were I think there were. 35 people in the room, and, and the vote at the end was 17 to 18. Oh, wow. Right? Like, like they were split. Neatly, neatly dis- divided between optimists and pessimists. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It it was really interesting, you know, and, and, and it kind of developed thematically, so, you know, round one of the debate, I felt like the strongest argument to put forward for the proposition that humanity is on the right track. I said, well, you know, okay, so... Um, Basically, first thing you need to do is ask: Well, what would it what would it mean for humanity to be on the right track? And surely, if it means anything, it means that you know we're on the path of increasing levels of well being. And so, I argued that if you look at just the macro measures of health, uh, wealth, of education, that we are clearly on the right track. And it was basically you know one of the chapters from. From my last book age of discovery you know the way that you know life expectancy has leapt by two decades globally over the past 50 years
0: yeah, i, I mean is this, is, now, this is like Pink, everywhere this is pinker's but, argument in enlightenment now right? yeah, yeah exactly it's it's basically Pinker, any the- any metric you would like violence uh you know poverty yeah, yeah there, there's not a metric it's pretty hard to no no a lot of times people if you see him in public forums like bill maher or something people are like well but there's still this, there's still that. He's like, no, I'm not saying we're optimal. I'm not saying everything, but I'm saying relative to any other time, right? It's not that there's not still racism or sexism or other problems in the world or income inequality, but relative to any other time, these metrics are all better than they've ever been.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, name me a time was uh, a line that I used a couple of times. Right. <laughs> <laughs> name me a time where we've been better off. But, you know, and, and so then- the first opposition has to take that and and respond, and you know, and and I, you know, I think that the strongest response is, and you know, I was talking to a business audience, so I used a business metaphor. But you know, as soon as we focus on only the bottom line, right, that's when we hide all the problems that really matter, right, that really affect the well-being of the organization or of civilization, and 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 kind of the argument that, yeah, okay, if the macro story. Is is you know so clearly you know one of progress. Well, you know what about the more micro story of the division of the winners and losers and the inequalities that are that are growing in society. And so you know I was able to throw some pretty startling statistics out. Um, health, for example, we were we were uh, in Oxford, England, and you know it's a dirty it's a dirty truth, which is you know one that you can find in a lot of wealthy parts of the world, but in Oxford. The difference in life expectancy between the richest and the poorest parts of the city is about two decades. That doesn't surprise me, and that's not me. Yeah, uncommon. that doesn't surprise me. Yeah, right. So, so you know, we're talking about global gains at the same time that there is the 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 entire um, sort of uh, what's the word? Like the 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 entire size of the gain can be eliminated if you just like walk across the tracks, so to speak. Right, so you know how can that be progress? Or you know, similarly, there, there, about,
0: and this um, is the point you make in, in Age of Discovery, right? That, that one of the challenges in the Renaissance and now is how do you take the aggregate gain and and make yeah. it more particularized, like it because because yeah. if yeah. you know if you looked a hundred years ago, I would guess that the same dynamic would have been true. About you know the rich probably live longer than the poor, but it 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 is probably both both of them are probably living shorter lives. So I mean the, you know this is. You know, but, but that doesn't make the inequality any less disturbing.
1: Right. And, and so, the, so there's that argument that you can kind of – you can question the headline gains by exposing the, the depth of the divides. Uh, but you can also question the headline gains directly. Uh, you know, A lot of these fancy global stats that the pinkers of the world throw out, they look very different if you strip out China, which, which is to say like there is one big story – that really is dominating the global story of health and wealth and education gains. I mean, like if you strip out China from the global poverty statistics, you know, most of the rest of Asia has just marginally improved, Uh, you know, uh, extreme poverty has been increasing in Africa and Latin America, right? And so you're kind of, Left with okay, so world outside of China far more ambiguous story the last quarter century, and then you look at the China story and you ask yourself, is it right to simply hold that up as a success story? Right, like what about the costs there? And there's this there's this entire urban underclass in China, people who have sort of peasants who have migrated from the countryside to work in the cities but the way that residency rights work in China, they have no access to education for their kids or health care for themselves. Uh, you know, you've got the Uyghurs in Xinjiang and the Tibetans in Tibet, these whole societies that, you know, are, are, you know, depending on sort of what side of that issue you are, but some people would say it's, you know, it's almost like a cultural genocide in, in the most rigorous or, or, or accusatory language one, one could use. It's a debatable point, but you know, less debatable is that you've got a party state, a ruling class that spends more on internal security than public health care. Right. And so and so kind of my opposition argument, and this was just round one, was to say that, wow, you know, it, it sounds so great when you give the kind of Stephen Pinker, everything is, is rosy view, but it you could also argue that it's it's so short sighted. And and it's so cruel to paint a big picture that is so bright and that is so blind to the real suffering, um, that is that is actually growing greater in in pockets of every society.
0: I, I can't and, believe I can't believe nobody you know, pointed out reality T V as an argument against emotion. <clears throat> <clears throat> they were, John Wait, John no,
1: uh, no, no, no. Reality T V came up. It's an argument for the motion. John, John Oliver
0: uh, put a, had a clip from <laughs> from Temptation Island or something, some British show where they were. He's like, everyone's talking about Brexit, and it was even on like this Temptation Island show. And <clears throat> this one was like, Brexit is that mean it's going to be harder to get cheese? <laughs> like, it was just <laughs> awesome. It was just awesome. Hey,
1: hey, 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 hey. Okay, so like this, this from the man who I know has now been religiously walk, watching. Uh, what naked, is that? Attraction. That is naked attraction. That show is so fantastic.
0: That show is fantastic.
1: I mentioned it to you. I didn't know that you would then go. back Oh my and gosh! Watch that the sh- that series. is
0: quality television. I mean, whoever conceptually devised that that show is a genius. That show is that's great television.
1: So yeah, right. So exactly. So that's why I say reality TV. is right, fair, fair. Where that fair. fits. Where that fits in the argument, right? You took a lot away from that. I did. I did. My wife loves it. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, I can't look away. And, you know, so it, I I thought that it was a... You know, and so the next round, of course, we talked about sort of science and technology. Um, You know, the, the proposition, like the positive arguments around how science and technology is going, it like demonstrates that humanity is on the right track. I mean... Anybody can make these arguments, right? Like we are we we live and breathe in a soup of techno-optimism. So it's not like it took a lot of work to figure out five minutes of bullet points of how, how great it is. You know, medical technologies, transport technologies, communication technologies. Um, I guess, you know, given that I was in a university when I was talking about this stuff, yeah, I kind of focused more fundamentally on the science. And you know, I, I I think it's probably generally true. Like you walk around any science quadrant, like the science areas buildings of any research university, and you know, people are pretty stoked about the science that they're doing right now. Like, you know, I've I, I think I could go into any faculty, like the astronomy faculty, and they would tell you that you know, the computer has meant more to the study of astronomy than the telescope ever did. Yeah. You know, yeah.
0: You could go in any, yeah, I, I would in any field. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah, Th- this yeah. Is-
1: it's just, it's totally changed things, right? Because you think about like biology with a microscope. Okay, great. But that microscope is basically limited. Its power is limited to how powerful a glass lens you can grind. And then how accurate the eyesight of the person peering through the eyepiece can be and you know to capture that whereas when everything is digital i mean the the ability of the of the machines to separate the signal from the noise is is, is isn't limited the way that our, our 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 mechanical abilities to make tools or to you know to see difference with our naked eye is. And, and so it's just completely opened up the universe of, you know, anybody who's doing work that fundamentally begins with gathering data, it's it's hard to argue that we're, you know, that, that we're not on the right track. And so, so that was actually a good point where, you know, I felt like I had made such a persuasive argument that I didn't know how the next speaker was going to rebut the argument. I love it. How would you rebut it?
0: the rebut the things are like getting things are getting better
1: yeah well kind of like the scientific optimism and the technological optimism i mean there's that like there's the science and tech is I, gonna, I guess there's you know, blade like, runner you know like i mean yeah, I, I mean
0: i i think like the, the the biggest issue i mean like climate like we could wreck the planet
1: yeah so that's and that's the direction i went and 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 so, you know, the fun thing about debating is that you 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 allow yourself to use some pretty loose rhetoric, which was also the fun thing I discovered about the format. Like rather than sort of standing up there and trying to know something and and be an authority, which is always questionable. Um, I was more able to just make arguments that, you know, in some cases quite obviously were maybe stretching beyond what the data supports. Um so I, I threw out this line. What do you think of this? That you know, some would argue. I didn't know that it was true. I didn't. I didn't hold myself to it, but I threw out there as kind of a rhetorical, a rhetorical argument against the techno optimists that some would argue that knowledge has killed more people in human history than ignorance. Yeah, I mean, okay, like. That's pretty strong, like, but,
0: like, like, like the atom bomb stuff like that.
1: Yeah, so I, I mentioned, like, I, I quoted Oppenheimer, right? And it's like, you know, I become death, destroyer the destroyer of worlds. worlds yeah. Is, yeah, yeah. But I also, you know, I talked about other things, like um, remember the Union Carbide, which was the this um, uh, toxic chemical disaster in 1984. It was the biggest industrial accident in, of the 20th century. You ever remember hearing about that? It's, yeah, it, I don't think I remember. Okay, well, Americans. Exactly. Ignorance is bliss. (laughs) Anyway, so Union Carbide, big chemical industrial company, uh, had this massive uh, chemicals plant in Bhopal, India, and in 1984, uh, toxic gas, it killed thousands and it injured hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, And I thought what was interesting about that example, as a kind of cautionary tale about technology, was that... The intended consequence of that uh, of, of, of that chemical factory in India was that this was going to help with the green revolution, right? We're we're developing fertilizers, and 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 these chemicals are going to help to banish the specter of mass starvation from from India's borders, right? That was the intended consequence, but it kind of demonstrated how badly things can go wrong when. You know, you treat technology like just a material thing, and 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 you ignore all of the social stuff that goes with technology, like the assessment of risks and and regulations and and ethics, and even like public awareness and participation. And like, so what is this thing, and how is it used, and what are the consequences for us? Um, just how badly we can get things wrong. Yeah, and th- we yeah. Fail to. This is Postman's. To, to argument. See all the social consequences. Yeah. This is
0: Postman's argument in Technopoly, right? That like that you know it's one thing when the culture's problems drive the technology, and then another thing when the when the technology drives the culture and he thinks that's a technopoly where it where the culture starts to serve the technology mm. and and, mm. and you it kind of runs out of control on its own you know mm. steam
1: and i I think that yeah mm.
0: that i mean that you could argue that that's diminishes
1: the human spirit. Well, not only diminishes the human spirit, but kind of exposes and kills, and kills to, people. to risks. <laughs> and kills and people. And kills people, yeah, right. and kills people. But, yeah, but, but, like, exposes us to these, like, big-scale risks, right? Uh, the same way that, you know, the the boom in transportation networks exposes us to pandemic risks, uh, or, you know, the boom in digital communications exposes us to infrastructure risks, you know, like solar flares and things have sort of gone from being curious astronomical events to these giant black swan possibilities that, wow, if there was ever some kind of big-scale solar flare that hits the Earth, we've got to have a plan for that because pretty much everything now runs on our electrical networks and, uh, you know, solar flares can knock electrical transformers out, can put whole countries in the dark and how would we prepare for that? What would we do? And, and, And it's interesting, you know, thinking about something like that as an example of you know a solar flare like wow so nothing that we've done that humanity has done over the past 50 years has had any effect on the likelihood of you know some devastating solar flare hitting the planet we have no influence over what the sun does and yet everything that we've done on this planet has increased the the cost of that event if it were to take place right because we've concentrated so much value into a particular way of organizing society that, you know, there's this celestial event that could disrupt that way of organizing and and so much now hinges upon it. Um, so that was interesting. We had a bit of a back and forth on that because then someone inevitably raises their hands and say, "But well, yeah, okay, now we're talking about doomsday scenarios that only happen in movies. I'm like, no, 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 no. I mean, these things happen on a regular basis. The only question is, uh, are we in their path when they happen and when we are in their path, because sometimes we are, how big were they, right? But it's, it's, it's just probability. There's, there's, you know, eventually these things do happen. And then I guess climate change is maybe the, the most obvious event, uh, the most obvious example of the kind of unintended consequences of technology, like the unintended risks that we expose humanity to because of like our relentless, Pursuit of more and more powerful technologies, um, and and maybe also the clearest example of well, are we are we generating risks of a of a type and of a scale that actually we don't have the capacity to to mitigate to solve?
0: Yeah, I mean, I I think hmm. that's yeah, I think that's possible, and I think you, it's interesting. I had this guy on Give and Take who wrote an amazing book about climate change and nuclear power. I mean, the book is fantastic and, but he talks about one of the things about climate change. That's so pernicious. It's, it's like all the things that make us not respond well to a problem. It's, it's abstract. It's invisible. It's like, he lists all these psychological Mm. factors that make it something that's very difficult for us to deal with. You know, Mm. that,
1: Mm. yeah, these,
0: yeah, yeah, I mean, that it's just, yeah, that sometimes we create a problem like that and then our psyche is just not wired to deal with it. Well,
1: yeah, yeah so 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 the psychology actually becomes really important right so so that was that was what the the second person against the motion sat down, so I sat down
0: the second person uh, meaning went, you yeah
1: yeah, yeah actually, like the fourth speaker me uh, the second opposition to the motion sits down, and then I kind of crossed the floor and I had to think about oh okay so so that was a good argument, um how to come back against that and and it was about this way like halfway through the debate where i where i really started to you know kind of uh you know poke poke barbs at myself so i kind of i stood up at the at the podium and 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 looked at the person who had just sat down and you know i kind of wondered aloud you know what what bad things must have happened in the youth of this of of this person on the other side that he has such a cynical view of humanity. <laughs> <laughs> He's Canadian. And has so little faith in our ability to solve problems, right? Which I thought was, yeah, we all had a, a good laugh. Because, you know, so much of this questions about, you know, should we focus more on the opportunities or risks do kind of come down to, like, are you are you a cynic or are you optimistic, you know? Do you think that we have it within ourselves to, you know, to recognize and respond to admittedly much bigger risks than we've ever faced in the past? And and so the optimist says, yeah, sure we do. I mean, you know, I know it's hard to believe, but some of our tax dollars actually are well spent in the sense that, you know, good disaster preparation does take place, in the the FEMAs of the world and the UK and the Canadian and the European equivalents. I mean, if for example, there is a kind of, uh, what was that film? Contagion. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So like this pandemic is a good film, right? And anything with, uh, Oh, what's his name? Anyway, always good. You know, in the event that there is some kind of highly contagious and deadly airborne virus that's detected. I mean, none of us are getting onto airplanes, right? Like quarantine protocols are going to shut the world down. And contain this as much as possible, and and those plans are in place, right? God forbid we ever need them, but you know, people have have thought about these things, especially after SARS, you know, after H one N one, when Ebola happened, you, you saw those quarantine, like the walls come down, like boom, okay, no, we're cutting you off from the world till we get a handle on this thing, you know. So we have learned how to contain risks like that, even even climate change, and you know, I, I know, I know it's difficult you know, especially with what's happening in the U.S. to feel optimistic about this stuff. But, you know, just setting that aside for a moment, like the Paris Accord, which was, I guess, what, 2015 now? Yeah, I think it was 20, late 2015. That was actually the first time in world history that virtually every government in the world agreed to a policy because of science. Which is kind of a, like, it, it, I guess it's just lost in the excitement of everything else that's going on in the world, but but that is a huge thing, right? And, and and, it says something about our capacity to be responsive to threats like this, and it suggests that actually, you know, as a species, even if it doesn't look like it, we are becoming more, our capacity to respond to like sort of what the evidence tells us is, is growing. It is headed in. In, in the right direction, so there is room to be yeah to kind of be justifiably optimistic that yes, big big risks, but no, we shouldn't we shouldn't believe that therefore we're headed for catastrophe and then and then I kind of expanded it into because I felt like you got to end the the positive argument with like okay so we there are these macro economic and health and wealth realities. Uh, There is the science and technological enthusiasm that we should feel great about. Uh, And then there is also just enormous political and cultural and social change that is also in a direction that we should, you know, fundamentally look at as a good thing. Like, you know, democratization. And yeah, it's taken a sort of some knocks lately, but since the 1970s, the, the number of democracies sort of, you know, in the world, I mean, it used to be yeah forty years ago it was maybe one third yeah of u n member states now it's like three fifths yeah right? this is also some of pinker's argument and stuff like yeah. so so you know across most of the world now uh the idea of rule by the people is the dominant ideology of how how society should be governed, you know same with market economics i mean you know love it or to hate it I, I guess the 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 proposition would kind of say, you know, name me a better system um but, you know, again, since sort of the seventies or eighties, you know, roughly three, four billion more people have joined the global market economy. And yes, all sorts of negative consequences, not to die in that. But if you if you think in in terms of kind of, you know, human fundamentals, war and peace, are the prospects for peace better now that most of the world, with maybe the exception of North Korea, exchange within a, a a traded market system. You know, most people would argue that it's better. Yeah, liberal, li,
0: better liberal, democratic people. states, like small, like classical, liberal, democratic states, engaged in free market commerce generally don't go to
1: war with each other. Yeah, that's right. You know, and it's kind of one of those truths You, you have of il, 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 illiberal
0: states go to war with each other, and illiberal states go to war with liberal states. But in general, liberal democratic systems don't. You know, no one's worrying about a war right. in Europe between so, between yeah. liberal polities.
1: Right. So there's this very broad argument. And again, it's kind of look at the macro picture is the subtext here. But this is a very broad argument that sort of between nations barriers are falling, you know, and, and you know, we got to kind of problematize that with what's happened in the last couple of years. But, but, you know, in terms of politically and economically, there is more exchange and more sense of we've got a common interest here. Uh, And then you've got to look within societies and within a lot of societies, you see barriers falling too, right? I mean, whether it's the the Me Too movement or, um, you know, getting much more aware of our biases around gender and sexual orientation and ageism and all of these things, right? That there is definitely across a lot of the world a a real campaign to, to recognize more and more forms of social exclusion, of, of kind of social and cultural walls call them a bad thing and and knock them down you know and 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 if you look at if you look at that progress of of integration within societies you kind of you know you can justifiably go back to you know Martin Luther King Jr and his arc of the moral universe is long but it bends towards justice and kind of argue that yeah you know it, it's hard to deny in the big picture that we're still on that arc and that, and that the arc is bending toward justice. And you know, as Obama modified it, yes, it zigs and it zags, but the the longer trend line is is one that we should feel that we should feel really optimistic about. Yeah. And, so yeah, I kind of yeah, so yeah. I kind of talked myself into being positive again.
0: Yeah. Now, you know, yeah, I think also the interesting question to me in the midst of this debate is: Does human nature change? And that, hmm. I mean, people that argue it doesn't will sort of say that's why science fiction works so well right because you you can change the context and technology and have sort of interesting dystopic utopic middle topic like kind of realities and stuff and yet Middle Middletopic, Middle Yeah, I like uh, that. So,
1: I like that. So, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. so you, you know, but, but so it's kind of like it's. it's wait, 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 wait! I got to stop on that for a second. So topia is where kind of everyone just walks around and shrugs their shoulders and says, "Meh."
0: It's like Target. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not. It's not Walmart. It's not Nordstrom's. It's Target. It's,
1: or, or as we say. As we say in Canada, where we're a little more sophisticated than, yeah, yeah so.
0: exactly, exactly. So you know, you
1: Target. no, 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 Target, Target. yeah, Target in the French, Target, in the French yeah. province, yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> I think that the, that there's arguments, you know, to be made that there's a lot more continuity than discontinuity. And then there's. It you know, was a book called All Things Shining that came out a couple years ago, 2011 maybe, and it's a great book by uh, Herbert Dreyfus and and Sean Kelly. They are both Heidegger scholars and philosophers, and they, they kind of look at the classics as these. It's the subtitle is "Reading re, Reading the Classics in a Secular Age," and they they kind of hmm. argue that that great books and these epic narrative traditions do shape human society such that you know they start with kind of. Homeric gratitude for a plethora of gods. And they kind of look at the, the, what they see, I think is a devolution to like David Foster Wallace's like paralysis before a plethora of choices, you know? And, and, And so they think that something is lost as you switch as the epic narrative, like switch. And they look at like, you know, when you go from like Homer to Aeschylus to, to Augustine to Dante and, and, and they're sort of, I mean, they're, they're the great saint for their, for, for Dreyfus and Kelly is, Melville and Moby Dick because they think that there's it's a kind of return okay. to something like homeric mm. gratitude before uh, a, a pluralistic you know palliative experience but i mean that i mean that that's a different kind of view i mean again they leaning on heidegger that that being is something that's subjective you know dasein when heidegger talks about being he's not thinking of something out there that's metaphysically unchanging but but Dasein being is is for heidegger like what the human condition experience and and that's it's interesting because it, it does then then do we get shaped differently you know or or is the human condition by and large you know a story of of of, of continuity more than discontinuity, which is why you can read ancient literature and still connect with it or you know i mean it's it just it depends kind of on, on your perspective on that but i think that's an interesting question to put in the mix because then it, how, how much does do technological developments
1: and things like that actually change who we are? And I guess, I guess, yeah, that's interesting. Like, and, and I guess it also, how did you frame the question is like, is does does human nature change? Because I guess also, you know, that kind of, well, you would be, you would be such a good debater, you know, like if you're in the Oxford chamber and you threw out that as kind of the twist about two thirds through the debate, people will be like, "Oh shit, that's that's a good one." Because I mean, it kind of it fundamentally questions whether the motion that the house is debating uh, can ever be can ever be answered. The humanity is on the right track. It kind of says, "Well, well, you know, you can't." That presupposes that you can sort of compare past, present, future on a sort of spectrum. But but you know if 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 the goalposts are kind of changing with each generation of renewal then you know how 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 can we possibly sort of connect dots and and draw a trend line that is either upward or downward i mean isn't every generation basically then going to you know tell the story that it wants for whatever the immediate purposes. I need I need a downward trajectory story because I want to seize power by saying that we're on the wrong track. Or I need an upward trajectory story because I need to unify um a population that has broken apart in argument about what track we should be on, right? Hmm.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. You know, T.S. Eliot when he was like doing PhD work at Harvard in philosophy, you know, the, the big analytic philosophy was so big and you know the question is language meaningful when it's referential or not like is language just internally sensible like it, it does it so like the, the big the mm. big proposition that they would debate in these seminars is the present king of france is bald right well does that mean anything because there is no king of france and yet these words all mean something so it, it's something like meaningful that doesn't refer to the world that, that's not and so elliot kind of fancifully said wow, well well there is a King of France after all. And by George, he's bald. And, and Elliot would say, you know, even illusions have reality. They have illusory reality. So these, you know, they, I mean, these are questions that are interesting. Like how much do things shape, shape us in way, you know, how much do narratives and, and the worlds we create through stories and, and, and intellectual constructs and things shape and change who we are?
1: Hmm. Hmm. Oh, wow. So we have to have another, I've got two things I want to say. Um, Remind me, Vivian. The the first thing I want to say is when you were talking about this T.S. Eliot story and about, you know, is the present King of France bald, you know what was going through my head? This early episode of The Simpsons when Bart was learning how to play mini golf and Lisa was teaching him and she was trying to get him into a meditative frame of mind by asking him Japanese koan. <laughs> so she asked him, like, remember this one? She's like, what is the sound of one hand clapping? And he's like, and he just sort of, you know, clapped his own yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like, no, 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 you don't get it. It's, it's this timeless Japanese Cohen without answers. He's like, no, 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 the answer is simple. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> anyway, uh, the second thought, we're just completely sidetracked. We won't go into this here, but after this lecture, I actually um, went up to a, a small, quaint, wonderful English village and had... Uh, an extended afternoon tea with my doctoral supervisor, uh, Vivian Shu, who is kind of one of the uh, she's retired now, but she was you know absolute architect of how um, Western political science looks at the politics of china and and this is very much you know her whole intellectual project is around you know how how do we it's sort of it's like trying to get beyond. Relativity, and more recognizing that there is there is something real about the context of our lives that, to a large extent, you know, we never we just can't possibly develop complete self awareness of. Right. It just it just kind of accretes, you know, like barnacles on a ship. It just sort of it 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 just sticks to us, um, and and you know, it shapes. And and if you want, imprisons, but you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be viewed as a as a restraining thing. It's just our our our, our need to make sense of our reality um, gives it shape that is then distinctive to kind of the environment in which we had to perform that necessary task. Um, and 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 so, can you take that? Boy, we are really. Off on it. Well, it's interesting. You know, it's,
0: inter- yeah. it's, it's, it's interesting. Like, so you think about China, right? And so there's this sort of classic kind of Western liberal democratic argument: the free markets, free people. That if you give people a bunch of economic freedom, they're going to want more political freedom, and it's going to. But that sort of mm. assumes because our experience in a certain kind of Western intellectual, cultural, political development, these things grow up together, right? But what happens in Completely. in China when? You can cultivate that that sort of so some of those market forces with an autocracy, right? Like, I mean, right, we think right. we and, tend to think that that's those things are, are are in such contradiction because we've seen them develop in, in relative symbiosis with each other. But what if it doesn't? Mm, <laughs> and then, yeah, and, then yeah. and then, what if people and, don't see the value in in political freedom, but do like the benefits of capitalism? You know, that's an interesting right, possibility. Right.
1: Right. And you know, and, and just I guess I'll go one one step further down this uh dark winding path. But you know, so my China guru, Vivian, would take it one step further and say, you know, so in in a kind of uh, liberal democratic world, uh humanity, the, the person, the actor is kind of the, the 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 purpose of history. I mean history is the story is his story, is the story of us and so all of the purposes of society are about us about our flourishing if you will okay whereas you know in in archaic china in in ancient china it was it was it was a much more cosmological view of the world that that the purpose was for earth to be in, in kind of symbiosis with heaven to be a reflection of heaven, of the order and harmony of heaven, and 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 that informed the ritual, and that informed the role, and that informed the policies of the emperor. And so, you know, Vivian would argue that, you know, not saying that you know President Xi Jinping thinks like that now, but that 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 legacy, which today you know is still in in ways that are completely unconscious in the structure and the syntax of the language yeah. and in the shape of the rituals and in the fact that why do the Chinese obsess about looking a certain way and, and writing these these long and impenetrable speeches and all of that? She has this wonderful wonderful metaphor, which I'm now going to steal, but I'm crediting it to her, so it's fine. So Vivian, uh, she plays the harp. She's a, she's a harpist. And she said, so what you can do on a harp... If you you play a chord, say like two strings, really, really strongly, and and that chord sounds out, if you then still those two strings, you quiet those two strings, you still hear the note because all the other strings are vibrating in, in sympathetic resonance. And so that's her metaphor for how our present way of seeing the world and our politics reflects ancient ideas. That themselves are no longer playing. Yeah, yeah, I, I would say they're no longer present. I would say this about like
0: Marxism. You, you, you know, you look at Marx and Engels, and they were atheists, angry at God, and they you, they kind of make a sort of godless Christian vision because there's a kingdom of God, and and Jesus says the kingdom's already. It's not yet. It's this. Beginning revolution that's happening, and then we'll bring the end to history, and, and the lion will lay down with the lamb. And you see this in Marxism, right? The, the, the re, it's mm-hmm. already not yet, and, and the further the kingdom develops, then you have this utopian thing
1: where but, every you know. But it's drawing upon these sort of ancient. Yeah, it, it, it takes a kind of Christ-
0: Judeo-Christian teleology, and, yeah, and t- yeah. it's and it's an, it's an apocalyptic worldview without God, right? And 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 you couldn't, I, I would argue, without the Judeo-Christian tradition, Marxism would be impossible. Not that you can't transplant it out of that tradition into other contexts, but it wouldn't develop outside of that sort of biblical story of, of a kind of view of history that's not cyclical, but
1: teleological. Right, right. That's really interesting. And so, I mean, so all of this, though, so to bring this back to the debate I was having on Tuesday, you know, I get there is this kind of meta question about how do we, how do we begin to kind of put trajectory on humanity— Um, and, and is that, is that even a doable thing to, to know, are we on the right path? Are we on the right track? Um, and, and, you know, it's also interesting that, of course, right now, I mean, in an unreflective way, we're all doing this, right? Our present day politics and, 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 you know, business leadership, social leadership is all within a narrative of, you know, things are going great or things are headed in the wrong direction. Um i I remember so I kind of closed the uh the the argument against the notion we were on the right track uh with more personal insults at myself right you know, so 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 the proposition looks at the opposition as being cynical. Why are you so cynical? Why do you have no faith in humanity's ability to 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 address these challenges and and the opposition you know kind of looks across the debating table at as at, at, at colleagues on the other sides of the argument and, and just kind of like wonders like what what fantasy land did you people uh grow up in that you've developed such a naive optimism about like one what humanity's intentions are and two humanity's ability to like overcome obstacles. Um which which was obvious in, in the context of that debate because the, the proposition had grown up in Canada and so you know every trend looks like a hockey stick. It's just sort of, you know, going in the right direction. Um, I think, you know, and and there's a really powerful argument on the other side and sort of the cynical side when you ask, you know, is humanity able to to respond to the complexity and the scale of the crises that we've manufactured, uh, which is the global financial crisis? Right. I mean, so climate change is is the unfolding crisis now. You know, the financial crisis was the one that happened a decade ago, uh, which had, you know, catastrophic consequences for a lot of people and uh, and also happened within a domain of kind of, you know, society where the resources to study the problem and to see a problem are almost unlimited. Like the financial sector and the regulation. I mean, you've got as many PhDs as you want, as much money as you need to study problems and see them, and yet we still failed to see it and failed to act. And and so the cynic says, you know, something like the financial crisis is, is evidence that, like, you know, the, these problems. The reality is that what's happening is that narrow interests are capturing governance and capturing regulatory bodies and pushing society to accept rather than reduce levels of risk because fundamentally they know that the um, the costs and the consequences are, are going to fall most heavily upon the disadvantaged. And that's just fine. I mean, that's, that's the cynical argument to say that, yeah, maybe humanity as a whole is going to weather these storms. But again, if you think that inequalities matter, um, there's every indication that every big storm that hits is going to hit unequally um, and especially if we're going to enter into a world of slower growth right like populations got to top out um, uh, you know resources have a finite limit and so the idea that eventually uh, everyone is going to be lifted starts to be less and less credible and the argument that okay that that's it that's everything so now it's a distribution game becomes stronger and stronger and the cynic says if that's the case, then we've kind of got to move past a belief in kind of trickle down that the benefits will eventually accrue to those who need them and, and get more interventionist, which I guess is sort of where the, the, you know, the American left is today to say that, you know, why, why would we wait for those who need it to get what they need? We should just actively be giving it, be prioritizing their needs now. So, yeah. Yeah, it's I, – I completely – in summary – I think I completely twisted myself. It sounds like it in that debate. <laughs> because it's 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 so it's so easy when you want to um when you want to argue that we the humanity is on the wrong track. It is so easy to look at, you know, the the liberal democracies of the world today as uh, uh these are actually the words that I used. Uh, decadent inward looking hot smoking places that are so self-satisfied with their levels of development that they don't even recognize how backwards they're becoming. So, drop the mic. So, I,
0: I preached this sermon on Sunday about hope. And one of the things I was saying was that
1: hmm.
0: pessimism and optimism are sort of psychological and they and they both ha- can be re- reality resistant, right? Because the pessimist hmm. doesn't want hmm. to create false optimism and have their expectations crushed. So they sort of see through one set of lenses, the optimist, you know, can be a rosy-eyed, Pollyannish person. And oftentimes, if you have friends that are optimists or pessimists when you're in a crisis, it can be frustrating because one knocks you down, or the other one feels like they're minimizing your situation. Whereas hope is such that it can take seriously the problem and, and, and not paper over it, and yet also not despair. And there's something transcendent about real hope that can actually—it's that, that's it's sort of more realistic than— the opt than the pessimist, or because I mean it's it's it got as much realism as the pessimist, and yet it's it it's it it has the positive energy of the optimist without the Pollyannish nature, and I think that, that that to me is 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 I mean this is you know Viktor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning, you know like so much of 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 what kept people alive in the concentration camps was existential kind of hope, and I think that hope is a powerful thing because I think it again it 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 allows you to 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 dream and to have a, you know an enlightened imagination and yet also again not minimize the tragic nature of of the human condition which so often is before us
1: so that i think that's a brilliant kind of synthesis note to end on and i wonder to you know so i wonder because it has been a really kind of rocky few years you know, in many places around the world. And I wonder if that's going to be the, you know, not the middle, I don't know if it's the middle-topia, um, but I wonder if that's where the conversation is going to start going in a lot of societies is a recognition that, you know, we're kind of divided between optimism and pessimism and, 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 and both both dissatisfy in ways. What we really need to do, the unifying conversation is around hope. And, and how do we kind of, you know, come together and build together? Because we recognize that, you know, uh, fears and anxieties are justified. And we also recognize that we have immense resources and, and, and potential to, you know, address them seriously. And not to create a utopia in which there's just no more problems, but to create a different and more beautiful world. And and if that's a realistic possibility, then then surely that should be what we can we can work toward. Amen to that, dude. Dude, you should have been there on Tuesday. That'd be awesome. We might have to do this together. That would be fun. We could each play.
0: Mm. We could each play like two different people. Yeah, on each with, side. With, so with it,
1: two people, that's totally so yeah. like kind of like round one. I argue for, and then you argue against, and then we flip it.
0: Right. So we'd we'd each play like and, a couple people on each side. Yeah, that would be
1: fun. Yeah. I, it was, so maybe to, to wrap up in terms of like the, so there was kind of two levels of learning in that exercise. One was the content, and, and it's just fascinating to, to look at the different arguments and kind of be torn by the, the rhetorical strength of, of both optimism and pessimism about the path that humanity is on. But two was about this idea that we, 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 we actually, we need a double vision right now. Right, we we need to develop the capacity to sort of see uh, both sides and hold them because because that's the that's sort of the truest frame of looking at things.
0: It's Hegel, man. Contradiction. The yeah. truth is in the contradiction. The contradiction's the not really a problem.
1: But then, so thank you, Hegel. We'll quote him. Show notes. Hegel. This Hegel guy. Hagel. I've heard this name before. <laughs> it's all about the Hegel, baby. But, but you know the challenge with Hegel is what he doesn't I don't know if he gets into it cuz I I haven't memorized it like you but it seems to me that at the same time it's it's probably it's practically not possible to hold the contradiction and so the best we can practically do is to consciously shift perspectives and kind of yeah, develop yeah. Yeah. that muscle yeah. to see one and then the other and then the one again.
0: Yeah yeah Hegel has this quote in the phenomenology of 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 spirit or the phonology of 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 yeah spirit where he says i think he says that the truth is the whole uh and he basically you know adorno responding to that has this line i forget which book it is in but he says you know, the whole is the lie but but for for hegel you know <laughs> for hegel though the whole is only seen through the particular right like there's no universal outside of the particular right so you can only there's no view from nowhere right so you can you so our our finite capacity to see the whole is only you can see parts of it at once so you so the universal isn't an end around around particularity you know mm. it, it's not it's, it's not just, the particular yeah. is all there is but but because there's a greater whole but you
1: can only sort of you can only know the universal through many particulars yeah absolutely and and kind of piece it together and reflect yeah no exactly mm-hmm. amen dude so I, I feel like that was good work for both of us absolutely having having that conversation looking at both sides um, and and I'd love to know what our listeners thought yeah me too dude send us an email everybody <laughs> always mind-blowing my friend ditto
0: thanks for listening to the Atlas Project we'd love to hear your feedback Drop us a line or send us a message on Facebook. If you really like what we're doing, please rate us on iTunes and write a review. It helps so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks for listening and facing the new world with us.